Long past the hour for quitting labour, amid the smoke-filled haze of the south gate, the after-lodge crew continues to linger in the rubbish of the temple, under the watchful eyes of right-worshipful Grand Censor Bob. Not recognised nor endorsed by any grand or subordinate lodge of regular masons, irregular masons, co-masons, Canadian masons, or internet wannabe masons, they banter on as always. Puffing cigars, drinking stale coffee, making terrible jokes, studying agency law, spreading the intemperance and excesses of digital masonry, and generally disappointing all seven of their podcast subscribers. Do yourself a favor and stop listening now. Only trolls and masochists dare to eavesdrop upon this after-lodge banter. Welcome to episode 148 of the After Lodge podcast, brought to you from a small lodge in a local suburb near you. We really got to change that introduction, Bruce. Uh, I'm, of course, joined this week by worshipless producer Bruce. Howdy, everybody. Turning the dials and running the mixer and doing whatever it is that makes the show tick. Yep, none of that. We are also uh, joined by a brother who could not get enough of us. Whoa. Uh-oh. Oh, 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 no. Hold on. Oh. <laughs> I had the YouTube channel open. Uh, I guess now's a good time to mention we are uh, live streaming this to the brothers on IRC. As a special treat for those of you who paid attention a couple weeks ago and got on IRC. Uh, so if you didn't, you're missing out again. Uh, you don't get to see all of our fantastic faces. So, as I was saying, Brother Nick has come back from the IRC free-for-all because he couldn't get enough of us. Very you have true. to say hello. This will eventually be an MP3. Oh, hello. Hi, everybody. He's a masochist. <laughs> I'm back. I had to get yes. more. Uh, and our, our special guest for the evening is uh, none other than Brother David Riley, uh, originally from Massachusetts and has now moved into lands unknown and untold. Good evening, Brother Riley. Good evening. I'm living in so, <laughs> so what's uh what's going on, Bruce? How's the mail? You know, uh Christmas is coming. And in case y'all didn't know, uh packages have increased by seventy thousand percent. Uh other than that, 
you know, life's good. Working from dark Got to it. dark, but that's 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 how it's going to go for the next six weeks. I'm... Isn't that how it goes all winter for like everybody? Mm, mailmen, yeah. Oh, unless you live on the peninsula, in that place that will not be named. So, uh, yeah, I uh, I'm about the same as well. Um, I did receive a special gift of canned whale uh, that I wanted to share with you, Bruce, uh, from Brother Riley. Is this, <laughs> is, uh, is, is this like an, an edible thing? Or, I mean, oh, I no, it's, it's, it's very much edible. It's got Japanese writing all over it. Because, you know, I'm, I'm kind of big on tuna. Is it, how, do, how does it compare to tuna? I haven't tried it yet. I was, I was getting it to you since I know you're the big tuna guy. Uh, but they had to fight Brother Riley with, like, harpoons and whatnot to get this whale, so... Okay. Actually, it wasn't on a whale campaign, so that's not true. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, yeah, I don't know. I, I, was, I was fishing around for things to uh, poke fun at you about because I, I didn't really have any material, and uh, that's what came up. Yeah, it, so, uh, it's that I was on the Sea Shepherd, um, which is a marine conservation vessel, as their radio operator for um, a time. And I, uh, but the campaign that what I was on was a dolphin protection campaign. So hmm. it's, it's the tuna that you should be worried about, not the... <laughs> oh, I'm very worried about the tuna, sir. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, the Mexican government certifies tuna as dolphin safe, and it has a nice little happy dolphin on it. But um, part of what we found out during that campaign is that it will surprise you that bribes um, will get you the happy little dolphin on your can, regardless. In of Mexico, it. no way. I know it, it came quite as a shock to all of us. <laughs> Shocking. So, yeah. so basically, what you're saying is that, that like, it, it's not a Masonic whaling event that that you all take part in. <laughs> uh... No, it, it predates my being a Mason, but not my being a Demolay. Oh, okay. Hmm. So. Brother Riley, aside from uh, saving the dolphins, um, why don't you tell us a little about your Masonic career? Sure. I, um, I have a family tradition of Freemasonry. My uh, grandfather was a Mason. Uh, my father was a Mason. Um, an interesting story about my dad, uh, when he asked my mother to marry him, she said yes on one condition. And he said, a condition? What's the condition? And she said, you have to become a Mason, because I don't believe a man who's not a Mason can keep his word. Hmm. So that whole free will thing with my dad is a little bit in question, but anyway. <laughs> That's very interesting. I've never heard that before. Yeah, well, my, yeah, my mom um, had strong opinions about many things. So um, I became a DMLA. Um, I was a member of Albert Pike Chapter number 58, in San Antonio, Texas, and spent every Monday night of my um, teen years in the Scottish Rite Temple in San Antonio. And when I turned 21 and became eligible to um, join a lodge in Texas, I chose not to for a variety of reasons, um, part of which was that, you know, I didn't want to do stuff my dad was doing at the time. And I moved away and wasn't involved with the craft um, until um, a couple of things came together for me. My dad, my mom had a stroke and was in rehab, uh, um, getting physical therapy and stuff after the stroke, when my dad died of what 
I claim was a lack of nagging because my mom wasn't there to make sure he just worked. <sighs> and when we went to the funeral, there were people who were there for me. There were people who were there for my mom. But really, the only two groups of people who were there for my dad, because he had become reclusive and difficult because of um, pain issues and other issues, the only two groups of people who were there for my dad were the um, Air Force Honor Guard, who were ordered to be there, and his lodge. And it really impressed me that after all this time, knowing how difficult my dad could be with people and how he pushed people away, that the members of his lodge showed up anyway. And, and they reached out to my mother, and they really, they really took care of her um, and were there for her at a very difficult time for her. And I'm enough of a Texas boy that the, way to, the shortest way to my heart was to take care of my mom. So when I came back to Cambridge, Massachusetts, after taking care of family stuff, I sought out a lodge and found an amicable lodge, uh, which I think was a stroke of divine providence, making sure I joined the right lodge. Cool. Cool. And the, when I was a fellow craft, two members of the you know, leadership of the lodge approached me and said, you know, we're very impressed by you, and we think you would make a fabulous secretary. <laughs> and I was so, dumb enough to think that that was a compliment. So you had sucker written all over your face. That's uh, good to know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so my first Masonic office ever was secretary of Amicable Lodge. Wow, that is, uh, wow, that is uh, extremely uncommon. Normally, yeah. secretaries um, are, are crusty old past masters like myself. Wow. Well, I'm crusty and I'm old, but at the time I wasn't a past master. So I did um, a couple of years as secretary, and then uh, we had a gap in the line. We had a junior warden who couldn't move on because he got offered a dream job in a different state, and so I became senior warden. And the plan was that I was going to become be senior warden, then junior warden, then senior warden, then master. But you know how planning goes. Yes. So I went senior warden, master, and mm. did a year as master. And then um, um, had it two, two years off, and then went back to secretary for another year. So that's my Blue Lodge fun. Now, Hold I on. know you, you moved cool. to another state, but are you still the secretary of your original <coughs> lodge? No, no. Although I'm, I'm helping the person um, who <laughs> got suckered into replacing me. So, so. so you don't have to die to get out. You just have to move to another place. <laughs> it is not mandatory that you die to get out of being secretary, but you have to be really clever. Yeah. All right, Bruce, I'm moving to the panhandle. Nope. So, David, I was told that there's a really funny story about your pre-application interview. <laughs> I don't know which uh, funny story you're referring. Actually, I do. <laughs> uh, when I did my pre-app, I did it with, um, he's now right worshipful, Jerry Allen Roach Jr., who was master of the lodge at the time. And there was this other guy whose name I don't know because he, uh, we never saw him ever again. And he, um, so JR went through the whole, um, 
you know, everything that you say in such a meeting to the guys. And at the end of it, he said, do you have any questions? And I sat there quietly. The other guy asked a couple of questions. And JR said, what about you? Do you have any questions? And I was like, not really. We, you know, I was a DMLA. My dad was a Mason. My grandfather was Mason. I think I know what I'm getting into. And he said, okay. And so then the other guy left. And once he had left, I said to JR, actually, I do have a question. Uh, I'm married to a master Mason. Is that going to be a problem? And there were a couple of beats as JR parsed that. And then um, he said, this is Cambridge, Massachusetts. Of course that's not going to be a problem. Huh. <laughs> and I said, okay, I, because if it is a problem, I'll go away. I don't, I don't want to cause disharmony in the lodge. And JR said, no, no, it's not a problem at all. So then when I got you the application, him. I crossed out wife and wrote in spouse. And put down Nathan's name. As it should be. Uh, Bruce and I live in a jurisdiction that is uh, not so... That that would be a problem. <laughs> in that respect. Um, we're working on it. Uh, uh, one of the things that, that I thought was really cool this year, uh, at our grand communication, a lot of really cool stuff happened. One of them was uh, the guest speaker uh, did a, a discussion about generations in Freemasonry and, and of course how you know the younger generation is looking for something a little bit different than what the boomers have made here but what he did was he had everybody in the room stand up and then he would say sit down if you were born before 1945 and then 1965 and so on and, and you know large groups of people were sitting down at those those generational year marks but then he stopped after 1980. He said, if you were born before 1980, sit down. And then everybody left standing were the brothers who were, I guess, under, what would, you, would that make you, 36? Yes. So who were under 36 um, were still standing. And I looked around, and it was over a quarter of the room. And this is Grand Lodge. So these are masters of lodges, delegates, guys who were attending, Grand Lodge committeemen, district deputies. Like a quarter of these people, maybe a little more, uh, were gentlemen who were born after 1980, which kind of stupefied me because I'd never actually looked around that much. I had a different impression of our craft, and it looked a lot different when I joined 10 years ago, but uh, it, it's... So here in our state, I think some of the dumb things, like what Bruce and I are referring to, such as your petition, might have actually been an issue here. Uh, hopefully that's changing and changing quickly. I think what you're going to see in Freemasonry is a really strong generational change that is um, it's going to split with the guys who are at around the ones who are 40 years old now. Um, and as those younger guys take over leadership in the fraternity, uh, there's going to be a real struggle with some of the old guard who aren't going to understand their values or what they want out of the craft and who don't have the capacity to listen to them well. I have a friend who tells a story about being invited to a Grand Lodge focus group um, because they wanted to hear uh, what um, young men wanted out of Freemasonry. And he went to the meeting and they spent two hours telling him what, they should, what young men should want out of the fraternity. <laughs> and then asked if there were any questions. 
Hmm. Oh, I've been to so many of those, and they all work like that. Yeah, it's so. always some guy that's 90 years old and speaking on what young Masons are looking for. Well, you know, I spent um, from early on when I joined Amicable Lodge, I started doing candidate education because it's the, the one thing I love best in the fraternity is sitting down with a guy during the time when he's joining, when his enthusiasm for the craft is at its peak and teaching him to love it as much as I do. And I have to say, there, there's, it's very clear to me that there's going to be a crisis in the fraternity coming up soon with these young men who are either going to be incorporated and respected in the craft or who are going to peel away. And it's up to us to just, you know, people who are established in the fraternity to decide whether or not they're going to be treated with respect and heard and given what they're entitled to from the fraternity in terms of education, in terms of a, of a genuine spiritual initiatory experience, or whether we're going to turn them away because they ask inconvenient questions and they're not willing to knuckle under to authority for authority's sake. Now, that, that's interesting uh, that you use the phrase spiritual initiatory experience. Uh, that kind of talk in our jurisdiction, outside of our lodge, uh, which was kind of hostily taken over uh, by those millennial age masons uh, years ago, uh, that kind of talk sometimes gets you a sideways glance or if the past master is past master enough, a slap on the back of the head. So, yeah. could you elaborate on that? Well, younger Masons coming to... Look, I don't like the fight that goes on between Masons who are largely fraternal guys, Masons who are largely charitable guys, and Masons who are the esotericists. I think that's a pointless battle. The fraternity is big enough to provide all of us what we want, but what we have to do is respect each position. Let each man find in the craft what he wants and be tolerant of what the other guy is looking for. So I don't have a problem with the fraternal guys or the, the charitable guys so long as they allow the esotericists to get what they need out of Freemasonry as well. But if you look at the younger guys, the millennials who are joining the craft are looking for a non-dogmatic spiritual experience. Many of them have... Um, uh, non-traditional approaches to religion. They don't want to have, they don't want to be told what to believe. What they want is a place where questions are valued, where, um, where sincere inquiry is valued, and where tolerance is, um, is a byword for how people behave. And when they come into the lodge, they expect that they're going to have an experience that is deeply meaningful and that changes them. My, uh, my, my personal belief is that the symbols of Freemasonry are what in some schools would be called effective symbols, meaning they're, they're designed to effect a change in the consciousness, the intellect, the being of a man who contemplates them seriously. 
They're supposed to change your morality. They're supposed to change your understanding of the universe. They're meant to create a change in you. But they can only do that if they're presented with the sort of gravity and with the sort of impact that the ritual was designed to have from the very beginning. But you can't do that if, um, if your past masters are constantly interrupting to incorrectly correct words. Ah, uh, yes. Absolutely. You can't do that if you're meeting <laughs> in a building that is so run down that it can't create a good impression. You know, we built these grand buildings. The fraternity built these beautiful buildings during a time when men thought the craft was so valuable that they were willing to reach into their pockets and find that money in order to build genuine temples to the craft. You know, that's a, uh, that's a better way of expressing an argument I've had around this lodge than, than I've ever heard. Yeah, I was, get, I was getting ready to bring that up too, but it's your thing. Go ahead. Oh, well, I've been advocating since I got here, like fighting to... And we, we've been... We've made huge strides uh, since I've joined my lodge, but uh, it's the same thing you were saying, the rundown building that was just kind of propped up as a place for the guys to gather um, versus what we're trying to create, which is something that is, in essence, worthy of the craft. Uh, your lodge is, should be a reflection of, of how, you, how you esteem the craft of Freemasonry. And it makes a big impression on, on new initiates just from how your lodge room is arranged. Are there the cobwebs in the corner and the, the rundown building? Or does it look like the guys here take a lot of pride in, in what it is they do? And the counter argument we usually get is that we can't afford that because if we've got money to do that, we've got money to make a bigger scholarship or money to uh, find away some other... bicycles. Yes, yes. Okay, um, so let me ask you, what is Freemasonry? Define Freemasonry for me. It is a system of morality. Bail and allegory. Right. Good. Did you come up with that yourself? I did. I just made it up on the spot. I'm not good. Uh, mm. Okay, so very good. Now, a, a system of morality illustrated by uh, uh, symbols and veiled by allegory. I didn't hear a word about scholarships in that. Uh. Yes. I didn't uh, well, bicycles in that. So but, here, but again, this is Harlan's definition, not yes. the old guys. Well, here at, at the After Lodge, Lodge, uh, we we started this podcast kind of to evangelize what we were calling the After Lodge method of lodge success, but uh, it turned into something else, which is what we're doing today. But in general, what we were advocating was that those three types of masons not only can and should coexist, but that all three of those things are necessary. The philanthropy, uh, the fraternalism, and the ritual are all equally important, and we try to balance them. So promoting the scholarships is kind of a little bit of both uh, because we're promoting the useful arts and sciences, uh, trying to make the community we live in better because that's part of the practice of masonry. But sometimes that, that ritual tier just gets glossed over in favor of the other two. Right. Um, here's, here's a way to think about it. The fraternity is at its core, at its essence, the essential part of the fraternity is created in our lodge rooms. Without what happens in a tiled lodge, there would be no scholarships, 
There would be no bicycles. There would be no philanthropy. There would be no fraternalism. If you don't take care of that core essential part, the other parts which hang off of the fraternity can't happen. And for too long, we have been attempting to buy the love of the profane world through our charitable activity. You know, that's how most of the charitable stuff that happens on a, on a jurisdiction-wide level started. It was during the anti-Masonic period or shortly thereafter, we decided that the way to make the world think that Masons were respectable and good people was to start throwing money at profane charities. And Worked we, for the shrine. Yeah, for the <laughs> 22 minutes that the shrine continues to exist. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. The, the problem is that we have so overemphasized that that we've neglected our patrimony. We are drinking from wells we did not dig, and we're eating fruit from trees we did not plant. And if we don't change the way that we manage our money and what we expect from our members in terms of their investment in the craft, we will soon be both very thirsty and very hungry. I concur. That is... Um, that much Where has this guy been That's all my life? Really like, good all way to put that. Trying to say and can't verbalize <laughs> Yeah, I, I've been having these arguments here in, here in our lodge for a long time, and I'm, I'm going to have to go back and listen to this and make some notes and rip off some of your talking points because, damn. Yeah, it, they're all copyrighted. I will expect a, a appropriate remuneration. <laughs> but it's, it's a simple fact. If, you, if your lodge is run down and ugly and you have... 12 members at an average meeting who are the ones who are left who are willing to put up with it out of habit. And then a new guy comes along and joins and he's 24 and he thinks he's joining something that is going to uplift him, that is going to add to his spiritual development, that is going to provide fodder for his intellect. And he walks into that wood paneled monstrosity that is not only just run down, but dirty. He's not going to walk into it more than three times. Hmm. Yeah, he goes and through yeah. the degrees waiting on you to pull the veil aside and, and where's the real lodge, guys? Come on. Right. Yeah. And, then, and then you will not have members because those 12 guys are aging and soon will be gone. And we're, you know, I keep seeing things from Grand Lodges, you know, panicking about the decline in membership. What you have to realize about the decline in membership is that this is, a, this is what statisticians call a return to the norm. We had a tremendous growth in membership after each of the world wars, to a lesser extent after Korea. Um, those guys are dying off now. There was an, uh, an unusually large percentage of the American male population that became Masons during that time period. And we built the infrastructure to support it. Yep. Appendant bodies and a million lodges and yeah. And they are going away. Your only decision is whether or not your lodge is going to be one of the ones that goes away. Yeah. It's not what about the not... uh... Oh, go ahead, I didn't Oh no, it's not whether or not lodges are going away. It's which ones are going away. Right. 
Well, I was, what about the, uh, all the appendant bodies that we've attached to the fraternity uh, that can only exist because of our surplus population? Yeah, uh, I, have, I, have, yeah I have really mixed feelings about appendant bodies. On the one hand, um, I think there, there are ones that are absolutely essential for continuing Masonic education. I think they serve a purpose in giving uh, grumpy past masters a place to go and um, and play where they won't kill a lodge. Um, I think they provide for s some people in some jurisdictions, the appended bodies provide a lifeboat where they can go and they can find what they should have been able to find in their lodge in an appendant body um, without undue interference or overregulation. So I think they can be very good things. The problem is, is that we we have and the York right to their credit in many jurisdictions is beginning to address this. They the, the those bodies were developed at a time when we had enough guys that we could send everyone to their favorite dependent body, right? Mm -hmm. And now we're having guys be, you know, high priest of their chapter, illustrious master of their council, and master of their lodge, all at the same time or in quick succession. Yeah. Um, and it's not sustainable. We can't find leaders for all of it. We can't find sideline guys for all of it. And the solution is to take um, in New York right, at least in my opinion, for the, to the extent that anyone cares, um, to take the chapter and council and um, have them meet together and have them meet infrequently, uh, maybe three times a year. Commandery is a different issue. Um, I was thinking if, if you guys could just sell all of your stuff and come merge into the Scottish Rite, uh, it would all work better, but, you know. I'm a Scottish um, Rite guy, so. I, I am a strong advocate of the Scottish Rite, but when I was a Massachusetts Mason, I was the last, I, you know, my joke was that I was the last standing um, guy in Massachusetts who had read Albert Pike. That's not true, but, but it's hard to be an esotericist in the Northern Masonic jurisdiction. Oh, because Massachusetts, okay. Yeah, I forgot about that. I was going to say... Uh, the Scottish Rite that I know and love, I, I clung to because it was the place in Freemasonry where you could find esotericism when it wasn't an okay thing at my lodge. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, two of my, two of my um, greatest Masonic mentors and men that I admire are um, Scottish Rite Masons, illustrious brother James Stresner, 33rd degree Grand Cross, and illustrious brother Robert Davis, 33rd degree Grand Cross, both out of the Valley of Guthrie. And um, I would, it would be um, a disservice to them if I didn't say that I think the Scottish Rite is a great organization and that the degrees of the Southern jurisdiction are um, absolutely some of the most moving Masonic moments of my life were witnessing those degrees. So you did get a chance to do the Southern Jurisdiction degrees. That was my next question. Yeah, I, I've seen all the degrees of the Southern Jurisdiction performed in okay. full form. Because the Northern Jurisdiction degrees, 
as I understand, are like the George Washington degree and the Alexander Hamilton degree. And the George the, Washington thing isn't a degree anymore. It's now a play that they'll perform for the public. Oh, that's even better. Look, I think the Northern Masonic jurisdiction has a lot to offer. I do. I think that um, the current um, Sovereign Grand Commander's emphasis on taking care of our own through the Almoners Fund is brilliant and important. I think the problem is that um, they have rewritten the degrees to the point where they've taken out most of the challenging content, and they've, um, you know, it, and you have a sovereign grand commander who, in the view of many, based on his own writings in the Northern Light, is hostile to ritual. Uh, yeah, we've. It hasn't been that extreme, but the southern jurisdiction has gone through uh, a watering down, if you will, uh, of some of the more, I used to call them heavier, but challenging is a better word, uh, parts of the ritual. They A lot of that stuff's been cut out whole cloth uh, from the SGIG's office and disseminated down. Uh, we got in a little bit of trouble when we first started the show for uh, belly aching so much about that. Uh, yep. it's yeah, I, but it you know it is it is what it is. But I do think the appendant bodies provide provide a place for variety in Freemasonry that has been lost in blue lodges because of overregulation by grand lodges. Grand lodges, you know, were created to be a convenient administrative bodies for the lodges. And like all central bureaucracies, they aggregated power to themselves. And now, yes. you know, there are many jurisdictions where lodges are treated as franchise operations with quality control standards. And there's an expectation that every lodge will be just like every other lodge. And that's, uh, historically speaking, that's, you know, a heretical view, if you will, of Freemasonry. Oh, yes. I, I had never thought of that parallel before, but that is really solid. What, the Federalist thing? The franchise thing. Oh, yeah, okay. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, it, I think it, it's what comes when you elect too many CEOs to be your Masonic leaders. Right. Well, I was thinking uh, former, former military brass, but I guess it's the same concept. Yeah. A lot of the we, World War II guys came out, and some of the... Officers and NCOs naturally found their way into the Grandmaster's collar, and that's kind of the. And the men who had populated the fraternity at that time were comfortable with that because that's you know that's that command and control, centralized authority, organized regimen hierarchy. Uh, it, it was all very familiar and comfortable, uh, and that's kind of something that's just naturally rebelled against today. Um, well, Bruce has heard me talk at nauseam about uh, somebody needs to take the Grand Lodge down a few notches hmm. or a few scores of notches. It's the um, nicest way I've ever heard you put it. <laughs> well, I, I mean, our Constitution is ridiculous, and I think most states are, are very similar. I mean, the Grand Lodge regulations delve into some of the most mundane details of operating your lodge that are, should no way at all be the business of the Grand Craft. Uh, down to things as simple as 
when you have to fix and collect dues and when you have to suspend brothers for not paying them, um, what days of the week your lodge can open and perform labor, uh, what degree you can do that labor on, the the terms of... Uh, it gets down. I mean, it's a very big book. Uh, Bruce, you'll become very familiar with it next year. Uh, and it, it's... Lodges have bylaws around to govern themselves, and lodge bylaws here are like a page or two because everything else is spoken to by the Grand Lodge. Yeah, he, there's very little wiggle room. Um, a friend of mine is fond of saying that organizations that are growing are too busy to write rules, and organizations that are dying have time for nothing else. Yeah, yeah, I buy that. I also. Um, I, I don't know about in your jurisdiction, but in many jurisdictions, the number of things that Grand Lodges are making mandatory in terms of taking your officers away from your lodge and, and having them do other things is yes. growing and growing and growing and growing. And I told, you know, he's someone that I have a, a, a good relationship with and, uh, you know, in, in many cases agree with and work with, but I told... Um, uh, one of the guys who was in charge of uh, Masonic um, training for Massachusetts, that um, they made Lodge of Instruction mandatory for officers. In, 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 um, I told him, I said, you know, when you make a thing mandatory, that's just an admission that you can make it good enough that people wanted to go. Huh. And that wasn't, I think, an, an an appreciated comment or one that was received well. But I think it's, you know, I'm sorry, I think it's true. If it was really valuable, guys would go. But the guys who are officers in many of our lodges, if you want younger guys to be officers, you have guys who are working hard in their career, so they're spending a lot of time in their work. They have young families, so they have a spouse and children who expect to see them once in a while. And they may be involved in other things in their community as well. So they're trying to balance all of those elements. Um, in, in my mother lodge, we had many guys who it literally cost them money out of their pocket every time they came to lodge because that was a night they couldn't work. Yep. And so then when you try to make night after night out of, after night mandatory in order to regulate the lodges, by indoctrinating the officers, you have fewer and fewer guys who are willing to put up with that. And it ultimately leads to what I've jokingly referred to as the coprophagic school of Masonic leadership, which is guys are forced to eat crap in order to become officers, in order to advance in the craft, and then when they get into leadership positions, their attitude becomes, well, I had to do all that. Why shouldn't you have to do all that? Right. And it doesn't have anything to do with the value of, the, of, the, of what they're asking people to do or any uh, contribution that makes to the life of the lodge or the life of the craft in general. It just becomes the barriers, the hoops through which one has to jump. So what we end up with in many lodges is leadership that is the guy who doesn't have anything better to do than to go to all that stuff that they made mandatory. And he ends up being a leader in his lodge simply because 
he hasn't done anything else in his life, so he can have the time to do that. And that does not serve the fraternity well. Or, alternately, because he's been maybe even just semi-active and he's getting pressure from all the older guys, you yeah. know, to, to, to go through the line or, or whatever. No one's talking about you, Bruce. So, hmm. <laughs> um, don't I know it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the older guys that are uh, compelling you. Uh, it was five years ago. Now I'm it's younger than you. Not Masonically, damn it. <laughs> so, uh, Brother Riley, just as a little bit of change of gears, uh, I'm, I'm interested in, in, you keep talking about the York Rite. Uh, I, I know that you are very familiar and active with the York Rite. Uh, and as somebody who's never walked down that path, uh, I, I know you were talking about esotericism. I had an understanding that the York Rite wasn't that friendly of a place uh, for that type of Masonic study? It's, it's like everything else in Freemasonry. It depends on the jurisdiction that you're in. First. Okay. Secondly, I would say that it is absolutely impossible to have a total understanding of the lessons of Freemasonry without a thorough understanding of the Royal Arch degree in particular, but also in general the degrees that are in chapter and in council. Commandery is its own thing, and I, I wish that the York Rite for its own health and well-being would um, stop acting as if it was a progressive system of degrees through commandery and just let commandery be another one of those appendant bodies that hangs off of the York Rite. I think that would serve the, the York Rite better. But the, the, um, the legend that lies behind the allegory of the Royal Arch degree and the cryptic degrees is essential to an understanding of the lessons of Freemasonry. Those lessons are partially contained in the Southern Jurisdiction Scottish Rite degrees, but they're not as fully explored or as in-depth. Okay, because that was my next question is, uh, I, I'm f very familiar with the Royal Arch through the Scottish Rite. Right. Would it be to my benefits to find that in the York Rite as well. Well, yeah. I would, if you can find a York Rite chapter that presents the Royal Arts, that present, first off, the Mark degree in the form that it exists in the, in the chapter degrees is probably the oldest degree that we have in the, in the current form. So the other degrees have been molded more a long time. But the Mark degree has pretty much been left as it, it, a piece of it, has been left pretty much as it was before the formation of a Grand Lodge. So okay. that's, that's an, an interesting historical piece. And, um, you know, other than that, I would say the Royal Arch degree has the content for an esotericist. If you can find a chapter that will present that degree to you in the most impressive manner possible, um, and that degree is a bear to put on. It's, it's difficult uh, floor work. It is really difficult um, ritual. And it's a construction project. 
So, um, but if you can find a chapter that can pull it off, it's absolutely worth your while. Okay. I have... the, the cryptic degrees are tiny little degrees. Um, they are very short, but they're very beautiful, and they, they fill in a piece of the allegory that I think is really essential to a, a full understanding of the story. Um, do I think that you're... Um, do I think it's impossible to be a great Mason and never having, having never taken those degrees? Of course. But do I think that it makes it easy for you to, to grasp the full beauty of the system? Yes. Okay. I mean, I, since I've become a Master Mason, uh, I, I, for, after a couple of years, I was faced with the decision of which right to go into. Um, the Scottish right caught my attention not just because I had pressure to go there for uh, some folks that wanted me to participate in the Scottish Rite. Uh, but also, the commandery, just its mere existence, uh, was a huge turnoff for the York Rite for me early on. So I didn't go down that path, even though I know that there are three separate organizations that comprise the York Rite, just like there are four that make up the Scottish Rite. Something about the just the idea that the commandery is considered Masonic uh, has never really rested in equilibrium with me. It's it, it's one of those subjects I can't explain to people who ask. Um, let me let me give you um, two perspectives on it. I really wrestled with this for a couple of reasons. One is that I'm married to a Jewish man. So I'm very sensitive to things that exclude people based on religion. Jewish men are awesome. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, secondly, I'm, um, you know, I, I really value the Masonic fraternity's history of religious tolerance. Um, the first record we have of a Jewish man, a contemporaneous record of a Jewish man um, joining an English lodge is in 1723. There's previous references to it, but they're not contemporaneous records. And his name was, if I'm not mistaken, his last name was Rosen. But I remember he was a snuff merchant. I, for some reason, I like that. Anyway. Um, <laughs> hey, Bruce. I love it. <laughs> it would be more than 100 years before that same man would be entitled to vote in England, to serve on a jury, or to hold public office because all of those required Christian test oaths. Um, but his word was in a Masonic Lodge accepted as good enough, equal to everyone else's. And that, that idea that we've been promoting religious tolerance since before the phrase religious tolerance existed is something that I really value in the craft. So I totally get where you're coming from. Yeah. On the other hand, I also believe that there's space in the fraternity for every little subset and interest that is capable of sustaining itself. Um, there's a place for guys who want to play with swords. There's a place for guys who have a particular interest in exploring um, their particular faith, as long as that, that doesn't become a way of discriminating against Masons who don't share that faith. I'm fine with it. If the York right would embrace um, having a group of Jewish men form um, another appendant body and a group of Muslim 
brothers form another body, then I don't have a problem with commandery. The problem with commandery as it exists is that it's often presented as the summit of the York Rite, which it isn't. It's, it's strictly another body in the York Rite. And it's given rise to the idea that you shouldn't join the York Rite if you, if you aren't eligible for commandery. And in many jurisdictions, I think that that has become a predominant idea and not a good one. Fair enough. So let me, let me <clears throat> add in my two bits here. Um, back when I was raised and, and, you know, every guy in the lodge was handing me a petition to every appendant body that exists, uh, the commandery was the first one that I was kind of attracted to by nature because not knowing anything about Freemasonry, um, I'm a Catholic. So, you know, I kind of looked at that one as like, hey, you know, maybe, maybe this is the one I would most want to do. Um, and I, I haven't joined it because specifically they have that bit in there about how you, um, how's it worded, how you have to, uh, how you're basically required to protect and defend the Christian faith. And I, I don't know, I don't know how specific um, their their wording of that is. It, it you know, like all Masonic obligations, it's well worded to allow um, wiggle room. Well, I wouldn't call it wiggle room, but okay, I would say, you know, Masonic obligations were worded by people who had a good understanding of the fact that they needed to apply to all situations. Okay, and they needed to have broad impact. And if you look, look at your Blue Lodge obligations and read them with a lawyerly mind, you know, um, because that's how they're written. And I would say that the commandery obligation is written with a similar view. Well, here in our jurisdiction, um, the uh, obligations of the craft lodges aren't written down anywhere uh, that's acknowledged by the craft here. So that creates another problem is that because it's purely through catechism that that gets passed around i travel from end to end of the state uh being a grand lodge oompa loompa and uh <laughs> i've heard obligations that sound completely foreign which yeah sounds unbelievable for a jurisdiction that that has uh codified obligations but uh, ours doesn't and I'm scared that it, we, we've talked about enacting standard ritual here uh, and penning all of that stuff down uh, which is against some of those catechism obligations to do that uh, but also I'm concerned that it would be the Grand Lodge that gets to do that and that the form it would take would not be the form that I uh, partook when I came in well <laughs> yeah, inevitably, politically, the truth is that that's probably how it would go down. Yeah. Um, the, the thing that I tell candidates um, when they join the craft is, you know, in, in the jurisdiction of my mother lodge, you have an absolute, the Grand Lodge has an absolute right to set the words of the ritual. 
and the Grandmaster has an absolute right to tell you what those words will be and to hold you to a standard as to what those words are. But it is the job of every Master Mason to figure out what those words mean. And no Mason, Grandmaster, or anyone else has the authority to tell you what those words mean. You have to figure that on your own. That's why we don't have dogma. It's a great way to say that. And if we, you know, codifying the ritual, it would probably go down in a way that you would find difficult. Yes. Uh, although it, it's, it's kind of a trade-off because it means I would get rid of some of the lodges where you hear phrases like free, white, and 21. Yeah. Um, that's, <laughs> that's a real thing. I'm not making that up. That, yeah, I've heard that. I, I know. Uh, <laughs> I think that, you know, it, um, <laughs> I, because he's on my mind very much today, um, my lodge had a brother um, whose name is Ralphie. Um, and he was um, 27 years old when he passed away earlier this year. He had had a, a congenital heart defect from birth um, and had had multiple surgeries. He went in to have his, um, uh, to get a heart transplant. And while he was in the hospital, he got an infection and he never recovered and passed away. And I had the privilege of being Ralphie's Masonic educator during his candidacy. And Ralphie was African-American. And we got um, to the part where um, uh, we had to discuss the meaning of the word freeborn and discuss how that term had been misused by Masons in order to um, discriminate based on race. And, um, you know, it's always uncomfortable to admit that the craft has flaws it's because you love the organization so much, you want it to live up to its own ideals. Oh, yeah. And because you devote so much of your time to it, you don't want it to, uh, you don't want it to have this ugly history that in Wait. some places at some times it has. So anyway, I'm, I'm t explaining to Ralphie the history of, of um, <laughs> racial discrimination in Freemasonry um, in that context. You know, I sort of finish my piece on it, and Ralphie, who's African-American, looks at me and he says, oh, you mean the fraternity is composed of human beings? Huh. <laughs> and uh. I, yes, unfortunately, that appears to be the case. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what are you going to But he, you know, I think the as much as I'm against Grand Lodge regulation of over-regulation of lodges, I think we have to draw a line on moral points. And I think, you know, free, white, and 21, that's not acceptable, and that's a place where the Grand Lodge should regulate. So it's not. It's not acceptable at all. Uh, the reason we get so concerned about Grand Lodge regulation here is uh, it's actually the opposite reason. 
guys yeah. in my lodge sometimes have the concern that what Grand Lodge would come up with might not be what we consider to be moral and the standards of the fraternity. Uh, in fact, until recent years, I thought that outcome was extremely likely. Now I'm kind of on the fence because uh, things are changing rapidly in our Grand Lodge. But uh, So when you allow the Grand Lodge to issue dictates about uh, can a gay man be a, a mason in this jurisdiction? Uh, what about Prince Hall recognition? What about admitting men of color? Um, men of faiths that don't necessarily line up with the Judeo-Christian system. Uh, I sometimes fear the answers to those questions, if they came from our Grand Lodge, would not be the same answers our Lodge would like to see. One of the most beautiful moments I've ever seen in my mother Lodge was we had a class of... Uh, candidates where we had a Jew, a Christian, a Muslim, and a couple of generally confused theists, um, all part of the same class. And um, I'm well aware that there's many jurisdictions in the United States where the men who are my Muslim brothers, um, who are members of my lodge, members of the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts would not be welcomed. And that makes me very sad. I'm very aware that there's members of my lodge who are African American, who if they went to some jurisdictions and went to the wrong lodge and presented their dues cards, would not be welcomed as a brother. <clears throat> Selma. Sorry, that was a previous episode of the show where we called out uh, a certain place uh, for that. <laughs> So. And, and, you know, I'm well aware that there's certain jurisdictions where I would not be welcomed. I would probably be tolerated as a visitor, but if I tried to join, I would not be welcomed. Well, if you find yourself around our parts, uh, our lodge is not one of those, so you would <laughs> always be welcome here, uh, especially after all of the mic drops you've made this evening. Uh, I don't know if you're on the IRC channel right now. No, he's not, but some of his comments are hilarious. You got to say what uh, Lewis was talking about. Oh, hold on. Oh, his mic is all messed up from all the times he dropped it. Yeah. Uh, Kanye, Kanye West was like, okay, <laughs> now you're just showing off. <laughs> right. uh, the fun part about doing live streams is uh, getting to read the commentary as we go along in the show uh, in the IRC channel. And uh, I, if I've been smirking at inappropriate times uh, during our recording, it's because of something that was being said in there. So. Yeah. Um, but... David, if you're okay with sharing, because it is Ralphie's uh, birthday, how do you feel about sharing the story of getting a bunch of people in a van and going to his funeral? Um, and your, uh, your <laughs> holy decorations of making... <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, when, Ralphie, when Ralphie went to the hospital, he decided to go back home to Ohio where his family was, um, so that he could be, so that they could be with him in the hospital while he waited for his transplant. So it was in Ohio that he died, and it was in Ohio that he was being buried. And um, a group of us decided, um, Ralphie had said that he wanted a Masonic funeral, and he wasn't going to be buried in any lodge other than our lodge. That just wasn't going to happen. So uh, there were 10 guys who um, piled into a van 
and drove to Ohio. Well, actually, there were nine of us. Another guy flew, whatever. Anyway, um, and in order to go to Ralphie's funeral. And prior to going, we had two forms of Masonic bureaucracy with which we had to contend. The first form was that Ralphie came from not a poor family, but not a well-off family, and they had um, incurred a lot of medical bills on his behalf, and you know his his mom hadn't been going to work on a regular basis because she was with her son, and they were in some financial straits. And so we gathered money from our lodge, from the Grand Lodge, and from the Scottish Rite, and took it with us um, as relief for our brother's family. And I, I, I remain really grateful to um, the Grand Lodge and to the uh, Scottish Rite for helping with that. Um, the other form of bureaucracy with which we had to contend is opening our lodge in a foreign jurisdiction. So we had to get permission from our Grand Lodge to open lodge in Ohio, and from Ohio, of course, to permit a Massachusetts Grand Lodge to open in Ohio. And then it turned out that the master of the lodge and the two wardens, none of them could go. Oh. Under the Massachusetts Constitution, the only people who can open a lodge are the worshipful master, either of the two wardens, the district deputy grand master, or the grand master, or his special deputy. And so I appealed to the Grand Lodge to appoint a special deputy. So, so you, you, you just have to have one of those? Right. Okay. Yeah, any one of those will do. That's and, the same right here, Bruce. And, and three master Yeah. And so I appealed to our Grand Lodge to appoint a special deputy. And, it, you know, the, the number of special deputies that have been appointed is, as far as I know, not very many. But... Um, they appointed me a special deputy so that we can open our lodge. Well, the powers of a special deputy, other than opening the lodge, are not well spelled out in the Grand Constitutions. No, when, you're, you're an at-large district deputy grandmaster is uh, how it is around here. So yeah, that was my... District deputy that, of every district. That was my interpretation of the and the Massachusetts Constitution says that the district deputy grandmaster can appoint such other officers as he may find convenient. So I decided to start appointing special deputy grand officers left and right. I had a special deputy <laughs> grand chauffeur, a special deputy grand cupbearer, a special deputy... Nice. That's awesome. And I'm pretty sure Ralphie would have approved of the whole thing. But yeah, that's... And so we went to Ohio and um, we attended... As a group, we attended the church service for Ralphie, and his family was ex his. I know why Ralphie was an extraordinary man because he came from an extraordinary family. They were extremely welcoming and very. Um, they couldn't have been kinder, more generous, or um, better people. Um, but there were a number of older men not his immediate family, but older men who were friends of the family or whatever, who were Prince Hall Masons, who were just a little confused by us because here's this group of men who are, you know, of different races, um, different ages, um, and, 
and you know we have white guys and black guys and Jews and Christians and da 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 da, and we're all showing up together as brothers for Ralphie's funeral, and one of um, and there was a little bit of commentary about that, and then along the way, um, I think it was a total of three different guys walked up to us and asked, said that they were so impressed by seeing us there that they wanted to know how they could become Masons. So we made appropriate referrals for them in their jurisdiction. And then at the end of that whole trip from Massachusetts to Ohio in a van, oh, and on the way back, um, we stopped by Batavia, New York, to visit William Morgan's um, memorial, the guy who started the anti-Masonic period in U.S. history. Mm -hmm. It is not true that we um, peed on the memorial. Hmm. We did not. We just visited it, um, took photos with it, and enjoyed the thought that William Morgan was in hell with a TV showing the fact <laughs> that the only people visiting his memorial were Masons. Yes. Um, the only but, people who remember who he is. Yeah, exactly. Um, if, if you haven't seen the memorial, there's pictures of us online. I, I, I strongly encourage you to go look at the pictures. The um, engraving on the memorial is ridiculous, talking about you know how this brave Captain Morgan was murdered by Masons in order to preserve the secrets of their nefarious order, etc. But anyway, um, at the end of that whole trip, I didn't want to kill a single one of the guys who went. Wow. And I think that's a real testimony to the power of, um, of the fraternity and yeah. the extraordinary nature of the men who are members of that lodge. No, well, they were all part of your special appointed grand line. How could you? Yeah. <laughs> well working for you. Yeah. That's never stopped me. You didn't before. have a grand cup there to uh, <laughs> stop and go get your coffee at the, at the gas station and whatnot. So, yeah. No, it sounds well, it's, like, it's, like... Go ahead. Those kind of moments are, are the things that that define what it is to be a Freemason. And it's stuff like that that you'll never forget, that you'll be the crusty old past master telling all the young whippersnappers about, and they'll be tired of hearing it for the thousandth time. But they, they get it, and, and we hear those stories. We've, we've lived stories like that. that is, that's the kind of stuff why I have to kiss my daughter goodbye on a Saturday night and get over to the lodge is in search of those kind of experiences. Exactly. Um, and that's what we need to be offering men in the fraternity. And what we, you know, we offer, in my opinion, far too infrequently is that sort of real, genuine, life-changing experience. Not every initiation, not every spiritual experience is happens through ritual that's the start of it but we have to offer that that sincere experience for people that in order to refresh that experience periodically or they're going to wander away looking for it someplace else perfect yep so before we uh before we have to, to cut, which we can carry on if, if there's something else, uh, I wanted to garner your thoughts, uh, since you have so many mic drop moments. Um, <laughs> a, there's a, a resurgence in, in our area. Uh, it, it, I'm going to humble brag and mention that it started kind of with our lodge, but um, 
it's spreading around uh, our area. There's a traditional observance lodge that's kind of rolling up here. Uh, it just hasn't been certified yet. But uh, a lot of guys from other lodges that are seeing an influx of young members, they're, they're, they're polishing their ritual. They're, they're cleaning up their lodge halls. They're doing everything they can do. And the inevitable subject that comes up when guys visit us and want to talk to Bruce and I uh, about you know, things on the show is the chamber of reflection. Something so simple and so almost immaterial in the grand scheme of things to argue about. Why is that such a hot button issue in some places? Is it there where you've moved to, or was it in Massachusetts? Was it Forbidden yeah, Blue Lodge? Yeah, you know, Massachusetts. In Massachusetts, the Chamber of Reflection is viewed as the province of the commandery. And it's used for commandery. Um, and therefore, there's a lot of resistance to using it for blue lodges. But I will submit to you that frequently Masons get hung up on words and mm -hmm. get about things. So if you are in a jurisdiction where people are hung up on preventing blue lodges from having chambers of reflection, I don't think even the most, um, I don't think there's any jurisdiction where anyone would have a problem with you taking your candidate and putting the candidate in a quiet space where he can center and prepare himself for the degrees and having that space um, be appropriately decorated. I don't think you have to use the trappings of the chamber of reflection as they traditionally wore. But you could have a volume of sacred law open on an altar. You could have um, appropriate symbols of the craft for the degree displayed for him. You could, and just give him a space where he can catch his breath, um, meditate on what he's about to do, mm -hmm. and prepare himself to take in the degree. That serves much of the same function as a chamber of reflection. It does, uh, and that's the standard advice that I've given them is to do the same thing, call it something else. That's how we managed to get one started in our lodge, and it was all good when we started by cleaning out the ante room. Then we started by adding, you know, the the table and the chair and and the mirror, and we one piece at a time, slowly. Everything was all good until we added the uh, emblems of emblems of mortality, um, and then shit went crazy. Yeah, isn't it funny how Masons have become terrified of <laughs> uh, emblems of mortality? Yes. You're um, the one group of men in the world who should have no fear of death. And yet, the emblems of mortality just freak devil out. worship. Yeah. I have none of it. Yeah, I, I don't get it, frankly. But if that's the fight in your... Look, you know, there's many jurisdictions where the, the words traditional observance pick a fight. Oh, they do here too, but yeah. that's not so much a big thing because there's only one lodge. And yeah, we're so don't use small those words. Do ourselves. Yeah, don't don't use those words. Do yeah. all the stuff. Don't call yourself a traditional observance lodge. Um, we just leave off observance, and uh, in fact, our, our website before the data center crashed and stuff went down, uh, the tagline was a traditional Masonic experience. And we didn't use the phrase traditional observance at all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just don't pick the fight. Um, and stay quiet. 
and and you know don't uh, don't um, seek out attention that you don't want. Um, yes, your lodge. Your lodge is your lodge. Right. So, landscaper Josh, if you're listening, that means uh, those photo bombs on Facebook of some of our ritual emblems hmm. are a problem. What about the ones he has tattooed on him <laughs> that, that, that he shows to every candidate? Well, if he ever wore a shirt, it wouldn't be a problem. Well, I, you know, I have, Masonic ta- I have a Masonic tattoo. Oh, time out. Um, you have to show the guys. You can't just look at it. <clears throat> wait, wait. Where is it first? <laughs> I, like, I like that you have to get up, and now they're going to get nervous. Uh, can you see? Uh, oh, yes. The high priest seal. Yeah, the high priest, the past master emblem, and 135 because I was the 135th master of my lodge. That's kind of cool. It's always fun to see a Jewish iconography. I have um, St. Michael. Uh oh. Tell them why you have St. Michael on your That one looks good. Um, Both of them done by brother Joe Boo from Chameleon Tattoo in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So if you want a Masonic tattoo, go to Joe. Um, I have St. Michael. I tell people that I have St. Michael on my arm. Because archangels are pure expressions of divine will. And if I have to backhand you, I want you to know it was God's will. (laughs) That's not true. The real reason is because the name Michael in Hebrew, all of the archangels have names ending in L because they're all characteristics of God. Mm -hmm. So Gabriel is strength of God, for example. But Michael is the only one whose name is a question. And it's who is like God. Um, and uh, in it, some people will say it's you know Michael who is like God, and that's not right because in the Hebrew it's yeah. very clear. It's a question, and the answer is nobody is like God. Who is like yes. God? Nobody. But um, I have uh, Ma means what for those of you listening. But I have Michael on my arm to remind me that God um, likes questions as much as he likes answers. Because Michael is, of course, the prince of archangels and the first being in heaven and earth to defend the honor of God. And his name is a question. So questions more than answers. No big deal. Right. The question always precedes the answer, which is ani viani, since we're bambling Hebrew. Um, <laughs> no, that's a cool way of looking at it. So anyway, but my Masonic tattoo, yeah. I, I don't think there's a problem with guys having... Um, symbols of the craft on their arms, but restrict them to the ones that we show the profane, which is pretty much all of them. Yeah. Well, that's one of my favorite parts of the fraternity is our, uh, our ability to, it's really big in this town that we live in. Uh, not so much anymore, but uh, it used to be Freemasonry. It's still a strong presence here. We still start local conspiracy theories because, you know, the mayor and most of the town councils, et cetera, are members of the various lodges around here. Uh, but in architecture, we or our ancestors have hidden so much Masonic symbolism all over the place, in the courthouse steps, in the, in the executive columns, on the porches, in the architecture. Uh, it's, it's one of the most fun things about becoming a Mason here is after you become a fellow craft and get the, uh, the explanatory tour of look for all these things in these buildings or uh, in these public ceremonies 
and then just watch the guys go all national treasure and, and go down an <laughs> internet rabbit hole that <laughs> repeats their interest. Um, but we paint graffiti like in plain sight. No one notices it. Like that's, that's how I equate it is we were just graffiti artists everywhere. But well, we hit it. graffiti artists with really good taste. <laughs> um, well, it, nobody would notice, right? Like it's, I, it's, I'm, like, I'm sensitive because I've been compared to Kanye West. So, <laughs> oh, oh, yes, uh, that was not me, by the way. That was uh, a nameless figure on IRC who I won't throw under the bus. <laughs> Lewis, whose name isn't even really Lewis. <laughs> well, if Nick wants to throw him under the bus. <laughs> so, uh, does anybody have anything else cool? Uh, I, there's, there's probably a lot of more cool stuff about you, uh, Brother Riley, that I, we haven't even got to scratch the surface on. Uh, but I'm really glad you, you took the time to join us this evening. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's always good to meet a, a brother from another jurisdiction. Uh, I usually don't like recording with guys who are smarter than me. Um, so I'm going to struggle with this one, but I will get it posted. Um, yeah, I, I'm. It's not a matter of being smarter. I always tell my partner; he always says I'm smarter. I always say I'm just better spoken. There's a difference. Yeah, that's that's unfortunate. I'm, my whole career is built around public speaking, and uh, I don't know. I'm gonna have to go brush up on it now. Uh, my debate coach would be very proud of me. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Um, well, it sounds like you've had a, a Masonic lifetime of making these arguments and throwing your head against walls is kind of what I'm getting out of this conversation. <laughs> uh, this isn't the first time you've answered these same questions. No, and you know, it, it, it was a decision that I made early on in my Masonic career that I'm, I'm not a political animal because I tend to say these things and that's not how you advance in the craft politically. So the way I'm going to change the fraternity is not by being a Grand Lodge officer. The way I'm going to change the fraternity is by sitting down with candidates one at a time or with small groups of guys and talking to them and explaining to them what this craft can and should mean to them. And it may take me a generation to change, but you know what? You go to my lodge today and you ask, Ask any of the guys who attend meetings at my lodge what the difference between fact and truth is. And you'll hear the answer that comes from Dr. James Stresner about the difference between fact and truth and why it matters in Freemasonry. They all know that now. Um, you can change the culture of your lodge. It takes a little effort. It takes a little time. But you can change the culture of your lodge. And once enough lodges change their culture, the culture of Grand Lodges has to change. Right. And that... Yes, that, that definitely works. Uh, if you can't change the space around you, you can change your lodge. And what we've seen is it started to bleed into neighboring lodges and then into their neighboring lodges, and, and it's, it's ripples in the pond. Uh, so a lot of the statements, the, the incredibly critical statements that I've made about my own Grand Lodge uh, during this, this recording, they've always been prefaced with, I used to feel strongly that a, a bad outcome would take place but now I, I, I'm on the fence and starting to think differently. There's very radical change happening in our Grand Lodge, and I think some other ones. Men in their respective lodges picked up the torch and, and started making the changes that they, they know needed to be made. 
And it doesn't have to be every lodge. Just right. three, four across the entire grand jurisdiction ripples and bleeds over, and then those four become eight and 16 and 32 until eventually we have the majority of the Grand Lodge and can enact real substantial sweeping change. Um, wow, I sound like Barack Obama. I'm going to back off of that a little bit. But uh, um, <laughs> but hope is, a, you know, the thing is, hope is a powerful tool. And when a lodge that is dying sees a lodge being successful using a different formula, it gives them hope that they can change and they can be successful as well. So I think, I think you have it exactly right. Hopey changing. Yes. Uh. No. Uh, so may this podcast be a, another spark of that change. Um, hopefully we inspire somebody to go back to their next lodge meeting and uh, start doing what, being the change they want to see, as cliche as that sounds. Uh, but it's, it's really that simple. You just have to deal with being berated by uh, really past masters for a while. But eventually they give up. I promise. Uh, we did it. And, and also, it, take the job that they don't want to do and do it. You know, yes. Most of them have no interest in talking to candidates. Mm -hmm. There's your opportunity to change your lodge. Oh, yeah. Set the perspective before they get in. Yep. So, uh, Nick, do you, have, do you have anything else? No, what what can I add after all that? All right. Uh, <laughs> oh, Nick. did you guys, David? You know who else said yes to coming on this podcast? Who? Your friend Bob Davis. Ah, uh, yeah. Bob Davis is. Um, if you had to make a list of ten of the the most impressive Masons in the United States, um, Bob would be on the top part of that list. He is an incredible right. so me and You and Bob and uh, <laughs> oh no, we'll keep this list going. <laughs> I am not in his class, uh, but yeah, he's an incredible guy. Okay. Well, yeah, no, we look forward to talking to him. Uh, Nick uh, was the one who reached out to uh, Brother Riley to uh, tell him about our show and uh, that we were inviting guests to come visit with us. So Thank you for that, um, Nick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, your Canada Dry check is in the mail. <laughs> and and thank you, David, for coming on. This was a uh, very enlightening show for me. It's a genuine pleasure to meet you guys. Yes, yes. Nice too. As always. A little bit of a change of format from our usual uh, shenanigans, so uh, a pleasant change, I hope. Uh, all you guys listening this week can let us know more or less of this sort of thing. Uh, would be good feedback to have. I'll play more. <laughs> oh, come on, Bruce. Fart jokes are funny. Fart joke shows are, are a good time, too. Um, all right. Well, thanks again, Brother Riley. Uh, Nick, we uh, will see you guys around, and this puts a wrap on episode 148 of the After Lodge podcast. You can find the show notes for this or any previously published episode at www.afterlodge.com. Find us on Facebook or Twitter at After Lodge. Shoot us an email at afterlodge at gmail.com. Hang out with us on IRC at irc.snoonet.org, pound sign Freemasonry. And, of course, the best place to find us, as always, is on the Freemasonry and After Lodge subreddits. Uh, if you are not on Reddit, you're missing out. So until next week, brothers, 
May the sun shine in your face and the wind be at your back. <laughs> Bye, guys. Good night, guys. Bye. Bye.